Why don't we begin? People may trickle in. We'll go ahead and start. I think it's about 11, and um, uh, I think I probably have a little bit more material than I, uh, I need to have come through, and uh, I would uh, also welcome any interruptions. I was saying somebody earlier, that's, that's the way I prefer things the most, in fact. So if something strikes a question or a comment, um, please, even if I'm in the middle of a sentence, raise your hand or, or just... Uh, Blurt it right out. That's that's uh, that's where it's fun to get that way. So if I may, let's begin with a prayer. Gracious and Heavenly Father, thank you for this day as ever. We pray, Lord, that you um, uh, that we would find ourselves um, not approaching your word, but finding it approaching us. Um, allow it to interpret us and make sense of us. We pray this. We beg this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So today, um, I am thrilled, Jeff, since you're here. Thank you very much for all you've done to put this together. What an honor and a, uh, a real privilege uh, to be asked to come be a part of the, the Mockingbird Conference down here, the first ever mini-conference. That's great. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, just what I hope to do is, is uh, uh, kind of piggyback on this idea of, of very much what Dr. Mattis has been um, uh, keying on this idea of our sinfulness. Uh, it was Augustine and Luther picked it up with real effect of our sinfulness being uh, ourselves bent in on ourselves, um, where the phrase curvatus in se, um, that we're curved in ourselves. Uh, I want to piggyback that on to this idea of inertia, uh, where we know about inertia, um, where objects in motion tend to stay in motion or objects at rest tend to stay at rest until they're acted upon like an outside force. This is, uh, I had just that in mind, and this is about the only thing remotely associated with Bob Dylan is, is the, the cover here, like a rolling stone, like a stone rolling down. Um, something had to get it started, and nothing's going to stop it until something from the outside, and that's the key. Something from the outside comes and, and moves the stone, stops the stone, redirects the stone, something else happens to the stone. I think we're all kind of familiar with inertia. Inertia is the part when there's a jar that's hard to open and it takes more effort to get it started. When you can finally get it started, it's not as hard to keep going. That's inertia. Uh, when you get a car stuck in the, the sand or the snow or the mud or whatever and you've got to get, it takes more effort to get it going once you get it going. It's not so hard. Um, likewise, uh, once that car is going, if you suddenly want to try to stop it and you get in front of it, it's going to win. Um, it's got more uh, going for it than you do. You're not a great enough force to prevent it. So this is inertia. What are the things that stop inertia? Obviously, friction. Gravity stops inertia. These are the outside forces, and I'm pulling that out just kind of at the beginning to... Uh, 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 let us have a little bit of, of fun. Here's the whale. Um, this is a pretty good example of inertia. You don't want to sort of mess with this. <laughs> Said for being up close and personal. It pops up, so it's okay. You know, you're not watching somebody don't victimize. Um... An object in motion tends to stay in motion until acted upon by an outside force. Here comes this whale, and they wanted to see it, and he saw it, but he got up, and then for, uh, gravity came in, and down he came on top of him. So that's physical law of inertia. Um, uh, uh, a psychological law of inertia. Uh, uh, once we begin down the road of being bent in on ourselves, it continues. And here's sort of a, uh, uh, even an over-the-top, um, description of that. This is an old Alec Baldwin movie called Malice, where he's a physician, and I'm not sure what the situation is. Here he is, and he's being grilled, and some young attorneys are asking him if he has a God complex. And Alec Baldwin's, um, it's a caricature, really, um, uh, over-the-top answer uh, about whether or not he has a God complex. Very successful surgeon. The question is, do I have a God? Dr. Kessel says yes makes me wonder if this lawyer has any idea as to the kind of grades one has to receive in college to be accepted at a top medical school. If you have the vaguest clue as to how talented someone has to be to lead a surgical team, I have an MD from Harvard. 
I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England. I am Someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock. Who do you think they're praying to? Now, go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church and with any luck you might win the annual raffle, but if you're looking for God... He was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. So, <laughs> that, I think, is Karate Sensei. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, passage that I want to hang this on is right at the, almost at the beginning, not, not the first chapter of Genesis, but Genesis chapter 3. We're going right back down to the fall of man, first 13 verses. Um, uh, so familiar as to almost be a barrier, probably, to most of us. Um, now the serpent, uh, the first theologian, that was really good. Um, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? That's the beginning. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Uh, then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to, well, then he goes on with the curses. So we'll stop there. Um, so much is in there from where I am right now. Um, I'm resisting the urge to unpack all of it. I want to stay very much kind of around the point of where we are with this idea of, of human uh, psychology and the law of inertia, where it's a description of our sinfulness uh, of being bent in on ourselves. I'm going to keep saying that phrase. Curvatus in se is where it is. The literally that we sort of bend in. And we find this there in the beginning of Genesis. Right from the, from the get-go is this law of human nature that the, the heart that is bent in on itself will continue to bend in on itself until acted upon by an outside force. I'm putting that out there as sort of my, um, my thesis. If this was the dis, uh, disputation, that's where we're going right now. And now I'm trying to sort of back all that up and see where we can pull that away. And again, please interrupt, ask questions anywhere along the way. Um, that we who are bent in on ourselves, uh, this is in fact becoming uh, ever increasing where other laws of motion begin to play in. That once we begin that bent inwardness, uh, we continue and it is increasing and increasing and increasing. So that the resistance which becomes so, um, not even second nature, see my language almost betrayed me there, it's our first nature to resist our bent inwardness, our addiction to ourself, our fascination with our navels, as we look down and we glory at it and we're bent in and we're like, wow, that's amazing, I can't believe it. Look at how wonderful I am, the idolatry that Dr. Mattis uh, spoke of, which is at the root of all sinfulness, which is at the root of all evil. Uh, we refuse to allow ourselves to be put on trial. We refuse 
to allow ourselves to um, be brought out, and we will defend ourselves. And now there is psychology. Hear those words: defense mechanisms, the refusion to uh, to be brought out, uh, scapegoating, which is very present here in Genesis three. We refuse to allow ourselves to be placed on any trial. We'll try anybody else. God, somebody else will scapegoat. The Lord God says, uh, as he's walking to the garden in the cool of the day, as he's done um, for uh, the millennia, whatever, uh, uh, since Adam and Eve were, were created, uh, what does Adam do when he hears God coming? He hides, and he's aware of his nakedness. He's aware of, uh, because he is bent inward now, he's looking down literally and says, oh my God, I'm not wearing anything. I'm exposed. I'm vulnerable. I'm without defense. He will not allow himself to be culpable. What does he do when the Lord God begins to question him? The woman you gave me, it's her fault. She did it. She gave me the apple. I've got nothing to, you, you, can't, you can't hang this one on me. It's right from the beginning that immediately, as soon as, as, uh, as, as Adam was bent in on himself and realized his nakedness, uh, he immediately wanted to deflect that and push it somewhere else. If you want to, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with psychology, but I can if we want to. Uh, this is every defense mechanism. If originally um, defense mechanisms like denial, delusion, minimization, suppression, repression, uh, all, all the ones that, that, that Freud and others have identified helpfully, uh, if they once served a purpose and that was to protect the child, because they always start somewhere in a childhood situation, uh, they totally get thrown off track where um, absolutely now uh, it's always to leave us as the center and uh, uh, the center and the wonder of my world. I am the most important thing because as I'm navel gazing, quite literally, uh, I, I will not allow anything to penetrate my defense, defense mechanisms. So, um, I'll stop. Any thoughts there so far? Just at the beginning, kind of hanging it out there with the, the thesis that the law of human nature is akin to the law of inertia, um, that an object that begins in motion will continue in motion until acted upon by an outside force. It is most especially true in, a very, um, uh, uh, in our understanding of ourselves, that we are bent inward, and at an ever-increasing speed, we will not allow ourselves to be undone. The, the, just hanging in Genesis 3 just a little bit more because um, there's so much to unpack. Uh, it is amazing. It's not 15 verses before. Where it's beautifully put. And the Lord God brought the woman to the man. It's that, that, that wedding image. The Lord God, who is the groom, um, brought the woman to the man. And the first poem, the first utterance, in fact, uh, in, the, in the scriptures is a, is a love poem. And it's just it's a beautiful one. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Um, for she shall now be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That, uh, he was beside himself in ecstasy over the gift that God had given. Fifteen verses later, she did it. The one that you gave me. She, she made me do it. I've got nothing. You can't hang this on me. That's how, um, uh, that's how sick we are. That's how corrupted it has become. Um, uh, again, and David, jump in here if you want, science, my science friend. Um, entropy, if we need another law to hang this on, entropy is that part which says that um, things tend not to order but to disorder. Here it is lining up already where things tend not to order but disorder, and it's very much an Augustinian notion, um, if, you're, if you're hanging around that, of a disordered love, where it's an inordinate love, where... It's not 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, the ordinal numbers, but now it's um, 6th, 12th, 1st, 9th, 15th. Everything is out of sequence. Everything is out of order. Uh, what once was, now is not. And that will only continue, and it will spiral down until um, something displaces it. And that's my foreshadowing, because that's going to be a key phrase that I want to put out there later. Um, we are falling in on ourselves and tending towards disorder. Scott Peck, a lot of people probably know him. He's a psychiatrist uh, who wrote, um, best known for uh, The Road Less Traveled, but he also wrote People of the Live, which was a book that he followed up with. 
brilliant subtitle um, called Towards the Psychology of Evil. And he put something out early in his book where it is an idea of people falling in on themselves, where now we are curvatus and say, where we've been in ourselves and the law of inertia gains traction. It's a long quote, but I think it's good. So reading it, dozens of times I have been asked by patients or acquaintances, Dr. Peck, why is there evil in the world? Yet no one has ever asked me in all these years, why is there good in the world? It is as if we automatically assume that it is a naturally good world that is somehow been contaminated by evil. In terms of what we know of science, it is actually easier to explain evil. That things decay is quite explainable in accord with the natural law of physics. That life should evolve into more and more complex forms is not so easily understandable. That children generally lie and steal and cheat is routinely observable. The fact that sometimes they grow up to be truly honest adults is what seems the more remarkable. Laziness is more the rule than diligence. If we seriously think about it, it probably makes more sense to assume this is a naturally evil world that has somehow been mysteriously contaminated by goodness rather than the other way around. The mystery of goodness is even greater than the mystery of evil. Now, I don't want to get into a dualistic framework, and neither does he, um, about you know good and evil, sort of in a Star Wars thing. Gee, I hope good wins, but we're not really sure because that's, that's not the story. But this last line, the mystery of goodness is even greater than the mystery of evil. There is this shift, this real shift of a way of viewing ourselves that uh, I think lines up with this idea of the law of inertia and the law of entropy as a way of describing human nature, that we, as, as we are bent in on ourselves and that continues at an ever-increasing speed. And I keep hammering this phrase because this is the good news. Until acted upon by an outside force. Uh, Peck is right there, I think, where I hear him say the mystery of goodness is even greater than the mystery of evil, as evil being defined as um, scapegoating anyone, even bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, uh, uh, in a span of 13 verses, uh, in order to protect myself at all costs. That's evil. That is, that is not good. He's got a very, it's a really interesting book, this one, People of the Lie, where it's not the evils that are propagated by the Hitlers and the Osama bin Ladens, but the much more mundane and ordinary, it's a very C.S. Lewis, John, um, sort of screw tape letters um, view of evil. Uh, it, it's, it's, one, it's pretty good. So anyway, with all this, uh, what do we do with it? Um, I want to introduce now um, the beginning of a phrase called displacement. Um, where the law properly exercised, to stay with the language that Dr. Mattis has been so, uh, so helpfully bringing to us, uh, the law properly exercised, um, or the gospel properly exercised, um, for as we serve one who operates in the fullness of time, his time, uh, things happen. It's not up to us to affect this outside force. Things happen, and it comes around. This is the Kanye West thing. Everybody knows Kanye West now. I, I, I didn't really before, except I'd heard that he was really involved in some pretty good stuff, that he was an up-and-coming um, star, and he had been really involved with Bono and others over and doing some work for Africa. Um, but here uh, lately, what, what do we know Kanye West from? Interrupting Taylor Swift. At the, what was it, the MTV Awards? Something, Something like that. Taylor Swift was supposed to get... What's that? Wasn't he the same one after Katrina got on stage? That's right. Yeah. Oh, he did. That's true. He aged black people. That was Kanye West as well. So he had that. So, um, I, here's, a, here's a clip when he shows up on Jay Leno the next night. And I, I, th I view it as a, as, a, as, a, as a description of displacement. He is, um, there's a confrontation, properly timed, because he's been prepared for it, where he is clearly outside of himself. There's going to be, I couldn't find a good uh, pickup on YouTube with this, and so there's some, some uh, words that the people, that whoever posted it tries to put up there. But you're going to see Leno really kind of step up a little bit. Um, Kanye West's mom, I'm, I'm uh, figured out, uh, recently died, and she had a particular influence in his life. Um, and Leno, to my mind, uncharacteristically kind of, got real with him because uh, uh, I didn't see the MTV Awards but saw the stuff afterwards. Uh, 
one would guess he probably wasn't quite in his right and sober mind. Um, uh, no excuse, but there it is. He, he's, he's coming with a contrite heart. We spoke about that earlier. So I'm just going to see this, and then as a good sort of pause, 20 minutes in, uh, I'd love some feedback, what y'all see and what's going on here. Sorry for all the words, but you can do it. Let me say uh, thank, you, thank you for honoring this commitment. A lot of times people, things happen, they kind of back out at the last minute, or they have a, a publicist or someone call and say, oh, I'm sorry, my client's not available. So thank you for, for coming and doing this in light of all the things that are going on. Uh, tell us about your day. Have you had a tough day today? Yeah, it's been extremely um, difficult. Um, I just... Just dealing with the fact that I hurt someone or took anything away, you know, from a talented artist or from anywhere, because I, I only wanted to help people, you know, my, my entire life. I've only wanted to give and do something that I felt was right. Sorry. And I immediately knew in the situation that it was wrong and it wasn't a spectacle or just, you know, it's actually someone's uh, emotions, right. you know, that... I stepped on it. It was very, it was just, it was rude, period. And, you know, I'd like to be able to apologize to her in person. And, you know, I wanted to. So when did you know you were wrong? Was it afterwards, as you were doing it? When did it strike you? Uh-oh. Like, like, as soon as I gave the mic back to her and then she didn't keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Let me ask something. I was fortunate enough. To meet your mom and talk with your mom a number of years ago. Uh, what do you think she would have said about this? Um, Look at that. Would she be disappointed in this? Would she give you a lecture? Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, I, I deal with hurt and, you know, so many, you know, celebrities, they never take the time off. And I, I've never taken the time off to really, you know, just music after music and tour after tour and tour. And I, I just ashamed that my hurt caused, you know, someone else's hurt. My my dream of what award shows were supposed to be caused, you know, and it, I don't try to justify it because I was just in the wrong. That's, that's period. But I need to, after this, take some time off and just analyze how I'm going to. You know, make it through the the rest of this life. How I'm going to improve, and because I am a celebrity, and that's something I have to deal with. Yeah. And if there's anything I could do to to help Taylor in the the future, or help anyone, I like because you, you know I want to I want to live this thing. It's hard, you know. It's yeah. sometimes. So hey, listen. Thanks for coming here. Thank you. For Thoughts? What do y'all see? Jeff? It looked like true remorse over what he had done, but it didn't come out until the subject of his mother. Yeah. Mm. He doesn't express himself very well. Why not? I think you're right, but why not? This is the, this is the day after, which is why Jay Leno said, I want to thank you, in fact, for honoring this commitment. A lot of people kind of let us into that world. A lot of people send their publicists and say, I'm sorry, she's not feeling well, and they end up getting, I don't know, Jack Hanna's animals or something to come on the show at the last he minute. He appeared to be embarrassed beyond words. Yeah. But I don't know if he ever expresses himself well, so I don't know yeah. if that had anything to do with it. Good point. He's a, he, he's a musician, so in his, I mean, I'm not listening much. I'm assuming he expresses himself well in his music. Uh, having a stage presence. You know, right. all that, yeah, I would agree. I would think so, too. I don't, I don't know Kanye personally or professionally. Um, I, mean, I thought that was funny, that, but I guess it wasn't. He's a rapper. He writes, I mean, they write their, um, write their own music. Right. Well, when he, when he <laughs> did that dastardly deed, I saw it because uh, my wife watches it and I sleep in the same bed she does. <laughs> <laughs> but, I get a lot of that, too. But he was very articulate as I remember it. I can't quote you what he said, and frankly, I don't remember what he was talking about other than he was 
bringing in something totally irrelevant to what she was trying to do. So that inarticulateness I don't think is necessarily a general problem with him, but he was truly wrapped up in it. Yeah. I just think he does express himself wonderfully here, just in the whole idea of, wow, this is, I really did mess up in public, and to then come out and, like Bill was saying, be willing to, just to show up, and, you know, b before all these shows, they're prompted with, what are the questions going to be? That's right. Um, so, you know, he, he knows that's coming, and then to be on national television, and to be completely speechless mm -hmm. for a man who who really, like, he is phenomenally articulate when he's on stage. That, that's one thing that comes along with his career. So in that way, yeah, I mean, I, I you get the message that he has the contrite heart with you know, exactly why he might feel is doing this. But then it's also just amazing to see just in this idea of how, you know, how we're all interrelated and there's, apps, you know, the, the idea of autonomy is just ridiculous in how his own his own problem you know that he's expressing maybe it's because his mother has died with it, whatever other hurt he's dealing with that then prompts him to get up and you know steal this mic you know, it, it's just that there are these positive feedbacks within ourselves that as we get drawn into ourselves then it you know keeps going but then that extends out and starts destroying other people's well, although Taylor Swift's career has been greatly enhanced by yeah, this she, she got her but you know at, at the moment that you know very 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 difficult thing for her so you know that kind of pain that is in us and then you know just invades other people's lives and, and just you know you, this path of destruction just it just struck me as not being at that point because most people when they come in a situation like that they talk to their lawyers or their publicist and they come out with a statement, well this is basically what I'm saying, mm -hmm. it's clear he had not prepared anything. Yep. He wanted yeah. to be spontaneous. You can tell by his, you know, his expression, not just what he said, but the way he said it, mm -hmm. that he truly was remorseful and finally he was remorseful for the real reason, mm -hmm. I mean, for a good reason, not because it's going to affect my career, but because it hurt somebody else. Yeah. Oh, okay, Jeff, no comment. Michael just came on for me. He, the, the, uh, the whole event at the MTV Awards was the height of self-absorption, mm -hmm. the height of being curved in on oneself. And he, he goes on Leno. He knows it's what he has to do. It's the right thing to do. But when he's confronted with what would your mother think, and it's clear from his reaction that his mother was someone that he knows at his very core, loved him unconditionally. That's when the real contrition came out. Uh, someone who in his life was a reflection of what the Father's love is for us. It was the friction, the outside force that brought that okay. self-absorbed inertia to a grinding point. Yeah. I'll pick up there. I read it very similarly. I don't know Kanye, obviously. Um, I don't know what he was thinking or feeling. But I read it very similar to what you just had, Jeff. Um, uh, several of the points that were picked up, surely he had his talking points that were given in. They have publicists. They know what questions are going to be asked. It's going to come. I don't know that he knew that Leno was going to ask him about his mom. That just didn't look scripted. because, And even the person who put this on YouTube and they were typing in their comments, he comes out and it's like, so thank you for honoring your commitment. How's your day been? He goes into these kind of incoherent, Talk points, points that he's been fed. You know, say this. I just want to do better, and if I had a chance, I would apologize to her. And I'm just, I'm trying to realize that my celebrity comes with responsibility. And they've been typing there, huh? What? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Then the left hand of God came out. That's exactly what you were saying. Um, the left hand of God, seemingly out of nowhere, the hidden God suddenly was thrust forth and revealed in the question about his mom, whether or not he knew it was coming or not. There, on TV, it was the left hand of God. There was an outside force that was suddenly entered into uh, his bent inwardness. The, the pinnacle, you put it really well, Jeff, the pinnacle of self-absorption the night before, of which he felt real remorse and contrition, I think. This is in our Anglican confession. Um, 
uh, where we confess our sins and then we get the absolution. But Thomas Cramner knew something else that, uh, which he added in in the words following as the preface to the comfortable words in our liturgy. After we confess our sins and then the priest absolves us when he stands alone and says uh, uh, that you are absolved of your sins, at that point, if there's an outside force that is spoken in the promise of the gospel through the absolution, that is where, our, where there is real repentance, Cramner said, amendment of life and the grace and consolation of the Holy Spirit. The experience of that is what I want to say, using Kanye West as my transition point for the rest of the short talk, is displacement, where um, real repentance occurs when the left hand of God thrusts itself forth into our lives. In Kanye West's case, I have no idea, you know, this is all watching and he may have, you know, completely reprobate life from here on out, who knows. But, uh, what would your mom think? The talk points stopped. You could see it. As a counselor, I'm watching and he's absolutely undone by the question. And then Leno didn't let up. He didn't undo him. He let some quiet. He even touched him. And then he said, um, what do you think she would have done? Would she have been disappointed? Would she have given you a lecture? And he, he stammers, he stops, he's about to cry. I'm about to cry. Um, and then he goes back to doubly incoherent talk points. He is mouthing something that somebody told him. Bah, da, bah, da, bah, da. But he's ab- and then finally Leno steps back. He says, "With us, this isn't this isn't late night television. How about some music?" You know, and, and Kanye's like, um, "Sure, I, I guess this isn't what I feel like when I get up." And then it stops. And that's and all that's pure subjective guesswork on my part. But the left hand of God, the outside force breaking, uh, the beginning of the no, finishing the beginning of the displacement, which he felt from the night before when he realized that, oh my God, what have I done? You know, in my drunken uh, exuberance of at the height of self-absorption, um, I stepped up and made just a complete fool of myself. Uh, the question: What about your mom? The one who loved you unconditionally, the deliverer of your promise. What about that? Completion. Displacement is the word that I want to call this. Um, because now we're going to transition. But any, any comments there? We're going to move to, I don't want to show the next slide. Um, displacement is the key. He was displaced from one place to the other. Yes. This, what is your name, sir? Bill. Bill. Along those same lines, when I was in the Navy, I was the legal officer for our squadron, and our commander had. Because in the Navy you have a non-judicial punishment where, they, where uh, captains or commanders of units, can they have some punishments they can do without going through the whole justice system. And what he had found out in his career was one of the best ways to discipline um, young sailors was to bring them into his office and he had already called their mother. Hmm. And like if somebody gets caught, you know, it makes positive on a, on a marijuana test. Because it makes them call their mother and explain what they did. Mm. Do that once, never, ever had a problem mm. with those guys again. So that's kind of along those same lines. Yeah. To bring that pretty strong outside force in. That's right. Yeah. Your mom. So. <laughs> um, Guess what? Yeah. Cause for a 19-year-old, it's a big yeah. deal. So you talk a good game until your mom comes into it. Yeah. Say, you know, put me in jail. I just don't want to tell my mom. <laughs> um, did you have something, Jeff? Do you want? Just briefly, but just one other aspect I saw in there was something that uh, uh, the office of the keys, uh, hmm. where um, one key is the law, and uh, it, it it binds us up in the prison cell of the law, and then there's the key that frees it. Whether Leno knew it or not, in bringing up the mother, he took this person who had not really considered all of the ramifications of what his behavior was, and just bringing up his mother locked him up. That's right. So that he could be freed indeed. That's right. Um, the, the two words delivered within the same word, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I thought it was noteworthy. Um, again, whether that was his experience, I don't know. Um, we can pray that it is. So displacement. Um, has anybody read much of Flannery O'Connor? Roman Catholic writer, um, uh, woman who died of lupus, who had lupus. There's a picture of her you can see with her 
her uh, her crutches. Um, Southern author, obviously, with a peacock, prominent um, Christian symbol throughout the tradition, um, but also in her her writings. Um, she wrote a short story called The Displaced Person in 1954. She was right in this idea. Here's a dialogue from the middle of the story. Um, well, she said slowly, y'all have looked at... Uh, I'm sorry, i got to get into the dialect. Well, she said slowly, y'all have looked long enough. What do you think about them? We've been watching, he said, as if this would be news to her. Who they now? They come from over the water. They're what is called displaced, displaced persons. Displaced persons, he said. Well, now, I declare. What did that mean? It means they ain't where they were born at, and there's nowhere for them to go. Like if you was run out of here, and you wouldn't have nobody have you. It seems like they here, though, the old man said in a reflective voice. If they here, they somewhere. Show is, the other agreed. They here. <laughs> so, displacement. This idea of displacement as a fundamental um, experience, which uh, moves us away from the law of inertia, um, no, which fits in in the law of inertia as the outside, as the consequence to the outside force that is acting upon us. If, as we are bent on ourselves as a definition of sin, uh, something has to displace us from that, displacement is the consequence of that. This story has that going, where the people that they're talking about, it's, the, it's a woman in the story, um, along with her hired hands, and they're watching from afar, um, some of the truly good people in all of her canon, evidently. Um, this uh, the story of people who have come across the um, the ocean to, uh, to to work on the farm. Who they're called displaced persons. It means they ain't where they was born at, and there's nowhere for them to go. Like if you was run out of here, and there wouldn't nobody would have you. Um, there's a a sent was a digression. I, I can't not not say this, and I'm, I've been stuck on this since Christmas. In fact, this was very much an idea that I kind of climbed in with around Christmas, and I mentioned part of this in a, in a class I did um, on the nativity back at the Advent. Uh, the word grotesque, I just, I just found this fascinating. That's a word, whenever I've read about Flannery O'Connor's fiction, it's always described as a grotesque genre, that her style of writing has a grotesque flavor to it. Has anybody ever heard this before? Because her... Her, um, her, her short stories is she was this old woman, you know, meek and mild, and she had this high-pitched voice, if you've heard her. Uh, they, were, they were fantastic in their, in their grotesqueness. That really is the word that you could use for it. They were full of, of, of crazy people. Um, there was death everywhere. They came out with these, these unbelievable endings um, uh, where uh, suddenly somebody gets shot and you have no idea what's going on you know it's somehow supposed to represent grace and all this is going on uh, just these, these, these lunatics um, uh, these, these people who steal each other's prosthetic devices I mean it's just it's crazy it's called a grotesque form of literature well the word grotesque I just think there's so much hiddenness here uh, it comes from the word grotto which is a cave or a crypt uh, where crypt, like we got the word cryptic, um, there's a certain element of hiddenness to it. Where the word grotesque, as a, def as a definition of a genre of literature, has an element which, although on the face is repulsive, in fact, there's a hidden attractiveness to it. I don't have any idea if when we describe uh, Flannery O'Connor's fiction as grotesque, if that's the intent of the people that say that, but I'm just, I'll, I'll never hear that word again and not be drawn to, although I'm repulsed by it, at the same time I'm drawn to it. It's very much you pass a car wreck. And what do you do? Don't look. I can't not look. You know, where I'm, I'm repulsed and strangely and wondrously attracted at the same time. Flannery O'Connor gets that in spades with her grotesque road, um, with her grotesqueness um, that is absolutely there. Uh, who else has that? Um, I'm, I'm going to speed up just a hair here. Um, well, no, in that vein, this is a, a picture that I found about five years ago, uh, and it arrested me then, and it's arrested me still. The title of this photo is by a woman. I have no idea who she is. She's also from Mississippi, I guess, because it's called um, The Holy Family uh, Mississippi Delta. Look at I mean, I, 
it defines grotesque for me in the best possible sense of that word. I've, I've, I've looked at this picture. Uh, I wouldn't say for hours. I definitely don't want to exaggerate. But I've, I've, I've had it, like I said, for five years. And I can't not, not get it out of my head. I go back to it again and again and again because of what she called it, the holy family. At once I'm repulsed by them, but then I'm absolutely drawn in. Where here they are, um, these teenagers. I mean, look how scared they are. Look how... Uh, beautiful they are in their repulsiveness. Um, and then this kid, this kid who's got his head down with a grimace and he's got that sippy cup right there. Uh, uh, the Holy Family, there's a grotesqueness to this where I'm drawn in on the inside. I think Flannery O'Connor would have this kind of family in mind as the Holy Family where it goes. William Cooper, in our own tradition, the Anglican tradition, um, he had this in mind as I was thinking about where would we find that element of sort of a grotesqueness. And I'll say a little bit about the painting in just a moment. He wrote, um, I think, even in the, the sensibilities of somebody in the upper echelon of society in 1772, it would be still repulsive. It certainly is to us now when we, when we viscerally think of, of uh, there is a fountain filled with blood. There is a fountain filled with blood draws from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Taste the saltiness of it and the grotesque feel of sinners being plunged beneath the flood, um, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, uh, where as we wash, as the saints in Revelation wash their robes, uh, their dirty robes in that, um, uh, in that blood, they come up white, the paradox of the blood. Um, and this was a picture... In fact, painted by both Cranachs, Lucas Cranach, the, uh, the elder, and then finished by his son, who we call Lucas Cranach the younger. Um, I won't say a whole lot about it. The only reason I brought this into it is here, um, uh, a sinner, Cranach himself, um, he writes himself, it's autobiographical, um, drawn in with Luther on the one hand, pointing to the Bible. And there's lots here. You can go look at this. It's the Weimar altar piece, I think. Um, so you can just go Google it and find some places. John the Baptist, Cranach himself, Luther, the risen Christ, conquering hell, but there's Moses and a bunch of serpents. Anyway, all this, but the grotesqueness, look at it, right on your forehead. To get in with that idea, that here's, here's where I'm going to come in um, and try to find an exit. Uh, to get in touch with that element of the grotesque, I think is a key part of, of uh, if, if we're... Uh, uh, in this conference and in our life and the situations, the Kanye situations, which themselves are playing out in our own life, uh, find the beginning of an operation of grace upon us where we are beginning to be displaced, where an outside force is suddenly acting upon us and we find ourselves, our chins being lifted up, as it were, away from our navels and the wonders of our, um, of our own glory. Uh, and we find that process beginning. Uh, it's this element that I want to connect with. Um, there's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. To taste its saltiness, to feel its, its, um, its sort of hideous warmth, um, uh, its sliminess, the way it sort of stays on us and in us and around us, its visceralness, where there's a viscera, the actual sort of substantive... Uh, uh, reality of the blood. Sinners plunged beneath that, that flood lose all their guilty stains. To connect in with that element of displacement seems to me to be a key part of our Christian experience. Um, O'Connor, later in that shame sort story, um, showed her hand significantly. We went through one of the characters. She said, you know, uh, as far as I... Uh, I wrote it down. Um, as far as... I'm concerned, Christ was just another DP, displaced person. As far as I'm concerned, Christ was just another displaced person. So there he is. Um, and there and there he is. Uh, sinners plunge beneath his flood, um, shall lose all their guilty stains. It was a woman who went to Hollands, um, now kind of moving away from that to the, uh, to the point of now standing in between the two worlds of... of of remaining at once, curvatus and say, and yet at the same time finding ourselves displaced, our chins being pushed up by an outside force. She wrote a, a small piece, Annie Dillard did, 
uh, uh, called God in the Doorway. And as it ended, it was a reflection on, on one of her childhood experiences. Um, I, I, I remembered this as I was thinking about displacement. But no, Annie Dillard says, um, it is I who misunderstood everything and let everybody down. I am still running, running from that knowledge, that I, that love from which there is no refuge. You know, this could be Kanye West describing his mom, but of course it's the sinner plunged beneath the flood describing the Lord. That I, that love from which there is no refuge. For you meant only love and love, and I felt only fear and pain. Here, Adam in the cool of the evening on that, that day where the Lord God came back out and says, where are you? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? You know, I'm naked. Before you were naked and not ashamed, and now suddenly you know. Um, for you meant only love and love and love, and I felt only fear and pain. So once in Israel, love came to us incarnate, stood in the doorway between two worlds, that sort of displacement, and we were all afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of being exposed. Afraid of our nakedness. Afraid of our shame. Afraid of having our chins lifted um, with that displacement of being thrust beneath the flood. Of following this ugly kid um, as our Lord and Savior. Uh, afraid of such uh, a visceral assault on us. Of having all control removed and finding ourselves in interpreted rather than being the interpreters uh, uh, I'll stop and then I'll work myself to a conclusion but I want to see um, any comments on any of this so far this idea of inertia then moving to a place of displacement with very much sort of the blood being a primary part Jeff so in result of displacement uh, is, is, is what you're meaning there something along the lines of the fact that at that point we're in this world, but we kind of don't belong in this world anymore. We're kind of between the two. Is that, is that what you're... Uh, yes, that's definitely part of what I would go with. Um, for now, our citizenship is not this world, but our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul <coughs> describes it elsewhere. Um, for me to live as Christ, but to die as gain, how shall I choose? Um, I'm stuck. Simul Eustace at Picator, here I am. Um, I can do no other. Romans 7, as somebody brought up, all that I think is kind of at play here. The colony of heaven. We reside in the colony of heaven. Indeed. And yet here we are, stuck um, and displaced. Well, yes, Bill. About, about the displacement argument is that, I guess, logically you can't displace yourself. So it has to be. That's right. Because, I mean, one of the things about inertia is it relates to inanimate objects. So, I guess as it relates to displacement, we're essentially inanimate yeah. objects. Man, I, want to, I can't not interrupt you, Bill. That was so beautifully put. Inanimate, without animus, without life. Um, uh, Paul's baptismal theology of Romans 6. Um, For we are crucified with him in his death, shall we not also share with him? in his resurrection, um, where our animation remains 100% on the shoulders of the one who displaces us. Very importantly, he displaces us from ourselves to him. At one and the same time, our displacement is never, ever, ever uh, without purpose. It is always the displacement back to himself. Um, to say an inanimate object has no uh, power to move itself. Man, that is well put. Um, I jump on the idea of, of animation as, uh, say, Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones, you know. Uh, anyway, if in the Westminster Commission of Faith, uh, it, it says that our chief end of man is to um, uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever, I think Paul had a, a way of describing what it's like pre-displacement. Uh, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, read Cravatus and say, and their glory is in their shame. Um, uh, where are you? Um, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? For I'm naked and ashamed. Um, there is now my glory. Left outside of displacement, uh, that's it. My stomach 
is my God. Um, my glory is in my shame. Uh, thanks be to God as we experience displacement, even the distasteful displacement of uh, uh, God save us from having, um, no, let me put it the other way. God bless those people like Kanye West who have to live under such scrutiny where this all occurs on the public stage that, that within hours, within moments, it's posted on YouTube for people like me to come around and, and dissect it. I mean, could, who, who can live under that law? Uh, God bless him and those people. Um, and then God bless that displacement from ourselves by the one who at once displaces us from ourselves to himself. Um, two minutes for comments because then I'm going to introduce um, very much sort of an off-tonic ending into this and look at a poem. Um, More of a question. Yeah. So I'm missing still a little bit the okay. grotesqueness. Um, I, I'm with you. I never knew that etymology of that word, and that's wonderful. What's that, grotesque? Yeah. yeah. So in that, though, um, yeah, the blood certainly grotesque in, in the sense that it's blood and but, you know, the dichotomy that to me that's the only hope that we have you know great um, in the end just that homology grotesque and that there's something that fascinates us there even though it's repulsive um, I, I'm, I'm still I don't know I, I, I missed your point a little bit with that so maybe you just restate it for me about just regarding is, is it that which that yeah. you know we're we Mark, come in please displaced by what's grotesque or yeah, he, he just wants more connecting the, the dots between the displacement and the grotesque. Yeah. Um, I think the grotesque, um, which has the idea of, of a hiddenness, as it's a cave where things are hidden, it's in the dark, um, but as the light um, uh, uh, which shines forth in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it, um, where that which is hidden is to be revealed. Revelation, I can't remember who said this, but I've, I've ripped it thousands of times since, Revelation has to be one of the most important words for a Christian, uh, where that which is hidden becomes revealed. Uh, the the instrument for that, um, from the movement from that which is hidden to the place of revelation, I would say in this short talk, and it's not the only way, but it's a good way, um, is oftentimes going to be grotesque, where there's going to be some vehicle which is at the same time repulsive, and yet strangely attractive. The Useful Sinner, the book out there um, by David Hawkins, is a great example of that. Of course, he doesn't use the word grotesque, uh, uh, but being brought from a place of absolute exposure uh, and seeing that as an instrument of grace, as an instrument of healing, as an instrument of restitution, as an instrument of animation, in fact. Um, that's the connection from being uh, been in on myself process of displacement to a place of, in fact, restoration. Yeah. So, so you're, you're saying more of a retrospective thing, because in, in the meantime, I'm not going to see, so for example, at, at any point before the Lord intervenes in whatever mess I've made, I'm not going to see what he's doing as good. You know, I've got my own plans, I've got my way to fix it, and then you know, he comes in. And then yeah, great question. Um, can you see it? Maybe, but it's probably guesswork. You won't know it's the hand of God until afterwards. But I guess I'm making the point that in, in the mystery of it and what actually appeals to me and realizing that it is wonderful, um, that, that even though it was initially repulsive, that I guess retrospectively it, you know, it was from him and so therefore you know, yeah. it's good. Often I would say yes. I would just say full point yes. That's often the way it happens. Not formulaic. Sure. Yeah, but, but yeah. John, do you want to say something? There's a um, piggyback on what y'all are saying, um, and you're talking about uh, Christ as a DP, mm -hmm. and actually Christ as a grotesque. There's a um, uh, Old Testament prophecy, right, about you know suffering fact, servant, right, yeah. right. So he, there was actually no comeliness That's right. about him. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 58. Yeah, right. In fact, he's repulsive. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I don't know the whole passage, and I can't quote it, but. Um, but there's nothing about him uh, to attract us to him, for by his stripes we are healed. Um, I think that's the way one place puts it. So. Uh, 
you think about it, the whole thing with Kanye is, was grotesque. Yeah. Because it's like watching a train wreck, and it serves the hidden purpose That's right. of showing the end result of being bent in on yourself yep. to such a degree. That's right. You could watch it initially, like like he did, and just uh, just get mad at him at being so self-absorbed and so self-interested. But if you knew him, if I was if he was a good friend of mine, and I saw him get up there, of course I would have immediate empathy for him. It's like, oh, don't do that. You know, you watch this train wreck happening, and you're like, no, no, no. Um, turns everything around. So that's perspective. What you're saying. Um, in the Holy Family slide, is is the child, the younger child, is is that child being comforted? Or I'm sitting back here. Is it ambiguous? It's hard to say. Yeah, it looks to me like the two, the man and the woman, are just kind of staring at the yeah. baby. But the, but look, the look on her face. It's, a, it's what? What is it? I see it as a just a look of love. I do too. That's what I it's like two women to me. I don't see them. Yeah, I don't see a man. You don't see this as a man? No, okay. not in a no, V-neck shirt. Two teenage girls. Yeah. Two V-neck shirt. Could be. I, I see that scene quite frequently with my grandchildren. Uh, some That grandchild has, has stubbed his toe or something that he doesn't like has occurred, and he needs some comfort. He's got a sippy cup, as you say. These, these teenage girls understand that. They're, they're accommodating him. Uh, it's not what they really like to be doing right now, but this is the focus, this is the moment, and they're taking care of him. Yeah, they're taking care of him. Mm -hmm. And I don't see the repulsiveness to it, frankly. I don't think he's totally heartbroken. I think he just didn't get what he wanted at the moment. But he's getting and solace. He's uh, getting solace now. Could be. I, think, I think the repulsiveness is it's not a like picture from a portrait studio, everybody in their finest clothes, yeah. in a beautiful house, or real out in front of a you know a, a yard. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what I would think. I think John's point about Isaiah 53 is beautiful, though, and describes it so well. It's in Isaiah 53, 2, 3, 4. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely we took, he took up, all, up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. If that isn't grotesqueness. Is there a kind of double displacement, or is it just kind of a single displacement? On, on the one hand, the uh, musician goes under this searchlight, mm -hmm. if you will, and, and he is displaced by that. Um, but to go back to Cowper's hymn, um, is that, it, I mean, that's the one displacement for the musician. Is there a, another displacement of, of being washed in that blood? Sure. That, that Absolutely. Yeah. Where sometimes um, it occurs at one and the same time, sometimes there'd be a sequence to it. Um, uh, I'm thinking of, again, Cramner's sort of outline of repentance. It's too linear, but, but for shorthand, of moving from confession to absolution to real repentance. You know, all of life is repentance, repeat. Um, uh, where is there a single displacement or double displacement? Yes. Um, and in the sense of, like what you're saying, when the office of the keys, uh, where uh, at one and the same time, there's the experience of a single displacement and a double displacement, where with hindsight, you can realize which one. Yeah. If Kanye, in fact, uh, what if that was, and I, and I have no idea, um, what if that was life-changing for him? What if that was the double displacement, displaced from himself, but then also displaced into the very heart and center of God? Well, thanks be to God. But it may not be. Yes, Jenny, we got to go? Yep. Okay. I think we're ready. So, any parting comments? Double displacement. No, no, that's, that's another whole piece. Of, I said it, no, I said it at the beginning. Or, or, or. Well.
Um, yeah, who was it? William Grimshaw? Paul's all used to tell us. Um, no, it wasn't. Never mind. So. Um, it's not fair. Yeah, it's not fair. I know. But you know, when you stand up here, you, you, you can. <laughs> Um, a man named uh, John Goodman at the Advent is a poet himself and also a student of poetry and and, uh, and he taught a class which uh, I've gone it um, I also told everybody they need to go to his class because he had this one as part of it this was a, in Christmas um, talk about single displacement and double displacement Mark and that's how I also that's a good way to introduce this poem because I'm not sure where it is because it moves from the which is why I want to add it as a coda off tonic I want to move the language from displacement now to suspension. And it is a little bit in that Annie Dillard sense of being between two worlds. Something called part of Eve's discussion. And obviously since we read the fall. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm not, I, I don't come by poetry naturally. I'm not patient enough for poetry. That's really it. Um, but this has stuck with me. Um, a woman named Marie Howe. It was like the moment when a bird decides not to eat from your hand and flies just before it flies, the moment the rivers seem to still and stop because a storm is coming. But there is no storm as when a hundred starlings lift and bank together before they wheel and drop, very much like the moment driving on bad ice when it occurs to you your car could spin just before it slowly begins to spin like the moment just before you forgot what it was you were about to say, it was like that. And after that, it was still like that only all the time. So, off tonic, and this is putting it out there, and this is the way she did it. I mean, you can see the blocking. That's not a typo. I mean, she put it there on purpose. Uh, there's this is a suspension, and I've read it first. Um, and I thought that's a good description of remaining now in the state of curvatus in se. It was that way, um, it was like that, and after that, it was like that, it was still like that, only all the time. Single displacement, but now maybe double displacement to stay with that language. And I don't know, I really want feedback here, because I'm working through this poetry. Uh, what about in, after the second displacement, where it's if the first to build language now with us just in this group, if the first displacement occurs when God raises our chin, as it were, and displaces us from ourselves upward a little bit, if a second one is to move us to him, uh, uh, does that also work here? And I really did. That's how I wanted to end it off tonic and say, I'm, 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 I'm now with you. I'm not standing up here. I'm just in this and trying to make sense of this. It was like that, and after that it was still like that, only all the time. And I couldn't help but think about this when I came in this morning, the Starlings. Uh, it wasn't 100, but I bet I saw 50 driving in this morning with, uh, with, with Dave and Kate. And just that way that they just move and dart. It was like that um, uh, when 100 Starlings lift and bank together before they wheel and drop. So, anyway, thoughts? Where does this fit? Surrender or loss of lack of control, or turning control over to, to someone else. You know, when a bird decides not to eat from your hand, it's you know giving up control. Because if it was control, it would want to eat. And the starlings, there's not one. You know that each starling is not to control somebody else. And obviously, on the ice, you realize you have no, absolutely no control. Hmm. That's, I mean, that, that's, where, that's how it struck But it's me. that sense of, and it doesn't, and you're just right there in that moment. It was like that, only still like that, all the time. I don't know how this fits, but it just getting back to your original ideas of just and then being displaced out, if you just stay with the physical example of that, of being drawn in terms from medicine and science is this great idea of proprioception just in the idea that I know where my body is right now even though I can't see it. So here's my hand, I know where it is, can't see it, that's proprioception. So I still know where my name is. You know, even though I'm not staring down at it, I, you know, I know it's there. 
so you know, so I am displaced away from it. So maybe that's the whole similar uses of Gothor at the same time. You know, God has displaced me away from myself, but I am still there. Um, I, I know where my navel is, and, and but even when I am with Him, you know, you know, even when I'm fully with Him, maybe I won't, you know, fill out our new bodies or what have you. Maybe you won't have navels. Maybe you won't have no perception. I don't know. But at this point, yeah, I am still here, both spiritually and. Yeah, yeah, that's good. To me, it's multiple descriptions of the leap of faith. Yeah. That yeah. moment just before you cast out without any firm. Yeah. There I am. There I am. Yeah. What's that? Standing before God? Um, it's Coram Deo. Yeah. I also see in the moment, in each of them, a moment of displacement between being in control and And somehow it's thrilling. You get the sense of life and animation, vitality, blood, a moment of when you're most alive. But anyway, this, it's stayed with me. So it's my off-tonic ending. Let's pray. Let me pray and then we'll uh, uh, enjoy our lunch. Gracious and Heavenly Father, pray as ever that your, where your truth was spoken, may it find root and return to you um, with a harvest 30, 60, or 100 fold. Um, and where it was not, Lord, that you would uh, uh, thresh it and release it uh, like so much chaff in the wind. Um, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.